what I believe all of these different addiction tendencies are pointing us towards is this desperate longing to just avoid the ever present chatter of that voice in your head that just continually goes on and on and on within the chambers of your mind. Hello and welcome. I'm Nirel and this is Get Grounded. Today, I'm so excited to share with you my interview with Tony Naj. Tony is a creator whose unique embodied style and rebellious nature resonate and spark debate amongst her over 350,000 TikTok and Instagram followers. On and offline, Tony combines her backgrounds in comedy and dance to tell interpretive stories, moving through feelings, spirituality, technology, critical thinking, creativity, and more. Tony also runs her own dance studio in Vermont and offers loads of classes online. Check her out. I'll share the link in the show notes. I feel so grateful to have been graced by Tony's virtual presence. She is one badass mama, challenging people to think, move, and grow outside the box through creative expression. In this episode, Tony shares some of the hardships in her life that have shaped her journey. We talk about growing up fast, grief and loss, meditation, healing through dance, and more. We also lighten the mood with some comedic relief tangents. I am so grateful you're here. But before we dive in, a quick shout out to our sponsor, Shortform, my favorite app for book summaries and guides. Visit shortform.com forward slash Nirel, that's N-I-R-E-L, for a free five-day trial and 20% off your membership. This app is awesome for when I want to learn but don't want to spend hours reading or listening to a book. Plus, with my code, your membership comes out to less than the cost of one book a month, with access to over a thousand book summaries and growing. Okay, now back to the episode. Thanks, Tony, for being here. I'm really excited that you're here. And uh, Tony does all sorts of fun stuff, creates fun and funny and um, informative and educational videos and posts them on the internet. And they involve um, some amount of like comedy and um, feels like kind of like self-growth healing journey, like maybe spiritual even type elements. Um, and yeah, is there anything else that you want to add there? Do you want to do like a little self intro? Um, well, you have a very dreamy voice. I feel like in comparison, my voice is going to be incredibly like abrasive, <laughs> abrasive. <laughs> yeah. I was just listening to your voice. I was like, oh, it's such a groovy vibe. I, mm. you should do books on tape or something <laughs> or read people to sleep. Thank you. I, well, I'll read you to sleep anytime. Just hit me up. Now you have my number so we could, yeah. Yeah. It's a very <laughs> soothing voice. I, I think about voice timbre a lot because, um, you know, vibrations of sound have healing frequencies and I'm not sure that I am in the, uh, modicum of healing sounds that come out of my mouth, but I do think that voices have that magical ability to penetrate into somebody's, uh, cellular level in a positive or potentially negative way. There's like a, 
maybe that is the thing about dictators now that I'm thinking about it is that maybe they have like a mag magnanimous and magnetic voice timbre that manipulates the mind with their vibration of sound. That sounds like something that I would have studied in college. I like what I studied kind of combined like linguistics with psychology, neuroscience stuff. And like, you know, it definitely sounds like something that we would have explored, like on a cellular level. How does the vibration of like the sound of people's voices potentially like on some subconscious level manipulate like them into like following a leader or something wild? Yeah, (laughs) I hope someone does a thesis on studying the voices of dictators and like gurus, you know, these people that have a a deep ability to bring people on a journey where it modifies their actions in ways they wouldn't otherwise anticipate. Marilyn Manson, I uh, wait, no, Charlie Manson, that's the Manson, Mm. how he was able, he didn't even murder anybody. He Mm. just convinced people to murder people. I mean, Charlie Manson's voice timbre is definitely thesis worthy, I would think. Yeah, people do some crazy shit and maybe it's tied to their voices. Interesting. Uh, It's worth investigating. uh, That's for sure. So I hope somebody picks that journey up and then (laughs) sends me their book when they're done. For sure. Thank you for um, sharing this concept. Now it's like planting a seed out there for the world, for anyone listening who might be, you know, like interested in exploring something and not sure what to yeah, explore. those like acoustics. Yeah. And then I'm sure you could do it with all sorts of famous musicians musicians too, because it's not musicians like every famous too. musician has yeah. an amazing voice. You know, Bob Dylan does not have an amazing voice, but it's a compelling voice. Mm, yeah. Wow. The qualities of sound. We could just like spend the whole time talking about this, I'm sure. I know. I did hear once, I mean, I think I I may have been on. I may have been stoned, but I I've heard this probably more than once that, um, the pyramids, the stones were moved with sound vibrations. Mm. Like they would make the stones levitate. I mean, maybe that's just malarkey, but it is an interesting thought that you can, I mean, I think from probably a, a physics, someone in physics could figure out an equation of how one could levitate heavy objects with sound vibrations whether or not it happened is yet to be determined yeah game for exploring tried that when I was you know maybe like six got into like exploring the concept of what it might be like to be a witch and practice levitating in like my family's front yard um yeah that sounds right it didn't get me very far but maybe I just wasn't using the right frequencies yeah I'm sure it's not easy (laughs) (laughs) well that's i guess that's the whole thing with the force right in star wars is that fantasy of moving objects with one's mind so Mm. this is obviously in the cultural zeitgeist of this kind of obsession with being able to manipulate the material world with our immaterial thoughts yes oh my god speaking of which i'm feeling the ground vibrating as we're speaking i think whoa i don't know if this is like something that's just like translating through the ether here, or maybe it's just the um, the garbage trucks that are outside, but yeah, what a moment. What a moment. What a moment. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, 
so yeah, so so tell us, Tony, then I guess like a little bit about you and like what you're up to and how do you kind of like define the stuff that you do in life? I guess I would define myself as a creator of content, although that word feels really, uh, I don't know, hijacked, I guess, in a certain sense, but I create a lot of content in a variety of different mediums and platforms. You know, I make short films, I make videos, I make dances, I do stand-up comedy, I've done a feature film, I, um, I write, I have done blogs, I wrote a book, I've written scripts, I haven't gotten a book published, but I wrote one. So if anyone wants to publish my book, I have it. Mm. It's in my computer living there. And I'll read Um, it once you write it. Thank you. Mm. I mean, I have it. I guess I could self-publish, but there's something that I've just been waiting for. And I don't know what that is. Yeah. Or I mean, like record, you know, I can like read it and record it. You can read it with your Mm. damn (laughs) voice. Yeah. And just seduce people into the cosmic fabric of my mind. Gorgeous. So I guess there's a compulsion I have to express ideas and thoughts that I have, mm-hmm. whether that's, you know, I was thinking I was with my friend the other day um, and we were talking about childhood and I had this deep, deep sadness all throughout childhood. And I cried like all the time, every day I was always crying, but always alone. Mm. I don't think I felt a lot that's of fun. space to express. Yeah. Good times. Yeah. Right. Like, I just cried alone a lot. Oh, here's mm-hmm. loonies. So, and I was thinking we were laughing about it and I was like, Oh, I spent all this time alone as a child processing my feelings, um, in private by myself. And then mm-hmm. I then eventually create this compulsion, I guess, to be seen and process all my feelings in a public environment and atmosphere. And we were laughing about how funny that was because she grew up with like five siblings, other siblings, and she was always emoting in public. And the Mm -hmm. second she would be alone, she would be like, ah, whatever, I'm fine and play where I was always the opposite. And so we were, we were laughing about how we had inversed. And now I only emote in public and she only emotes in private. It was just a really funny realization of, um, how our childhood tendencies can shape our adult expression of those patternings and brainwashings and behaviors. Yeah, beautiful, totally. And I mean, like, also, I mean, I can totally relate. It feels like um, at different times, just like, (laughs) I'm like thinking about some, about the video that I saw that you made about addiction and how like, how that's also another way of um, another, like, I guess, direction that emotions flow into um, that I've noticed when we're not like either expressing them externally, like you said, or processing them internally. They're just kind of like taking that energy and like, like putting it into whatever it is, like food or drugs or, you know, Um, yeah. Yeah. I think a lot about addiction behavior, um, because I think we all experience it to varying degrees and with different modalities, but I don't think any human being on planet earth, um, doesn't have at least some experience with addiction. 
unless you're a, you know, Buddhist monk or, I mean, then you're addicted to meditating. Ha ha ha. But yeah, (laughs) I think it's very difficult to circumvent the relationship between the human mind and addictive tendencies, because we do create all these neural pathways and it's hard to not replace one addiction with another in a certain sense, Mm -hmm. which happens so many times, you know, we've seen it. Someone gets off of drugs and they get really into sex, you know, and it's a different Mm -hmm. kind or into food. But I think for what I believe all of these different addiction tendencies are pointing us towards is this desperate longing to just avoid the ever present chatter of that voice in your head that just continually goes on and on and on within the chambers of your mind. Mm, tell so me about it. <laughs> yeah. I think we spend a lot of time and energy trying to run from that, but then also unintentionally reinforcing it, which is the cosmic joke of existence. Dude, for real, beautifully well put. Thank you for that. Seriously. I mean, this is what I feel has like helped me a lot, like with my own addictive uh, behavior patterns is like noticing, bringing attention to the fact that like I'm doing them in the first place and then like being in a position where I'm doing them. And then I'm like noticing that I'm doing them. And then also trying to kind of like notice that I am judging myself doing them and like judging myself continuing to fall into these patterns and then trying to like let go of that judgment so that way I can approach it with self-compassion and only from that place can I then like actually you know do something about it because I'm coming from a place of like self-love rather than judgment and yeah and then like actually just like be you know practicing sitting with myself and my feelings and just feeling like the discomfort and the pain that that comes along with a lot of the time yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's funny you mentioned the judgment voice I did uh I've done a couple 10-day silent retreats and the first one that I did I remember the first three days I actually knew nothing about Buddhism at all. I had no, no experience. I went to a a Chan Buddhist retreat at a Chinese Buddhist meditation center. And I mean, if I were to be completely transparent, I, I didn't, I thought they were all Tibetan until like four days in when I started realizing that <laughs> they were Chinese. I was like, oh, I thought only Tibetans were Buddhist. I was so embarrassingly ignorant when mm. looking back on that time, but I was very drawn to go. Mm-hmm. And, um, ah, I just, I feel so bad for that (laughs) previous self. Like, oh God, you had a lot to learn, but I was so ignorant in a, in a, almost a a holy way of ignorance, right? Because I was such an open vessel of which to experience this. And I was really committed to the process of Mm -hmm. what they were asking me to do. Mm -hmm. So the process of the Chan, um, lineage that I was studying or experiencing, I would say more accurately was mantra based. 
And so they had a mantra that they asked us to say all day. Mm. And you were supposed to say it at all moments, not just when seated, but when doing your mindful work and when doing going to the bathroom and when walking from the Chan Hall to your dorm and when what was eating. Your mantra? It's the same for everybody. Mm. It was um, what is Wu and Wu is a Chinese word uh, from, again, this is my limited understanding, but that basically represents the mysteries of the universe that cannot be explained through language. That sounds so, like a tongue twister. What is Wu? If you say yeah, it like what is over Wu? and over and over, over and over and over mm. again, they, they had other, um, you could also say, what is my original face? I think was another one, but I liked Woo, because it was a word I was not in the English language. And so it could be more iconic to me. And I didn't have to have the same hard nosed language definition. And I mean, basically, that's what you're trying to do in a certain sense during this meditation practice is exist in the place beyond language, because language is the chatter of the ego. So whenever you're saying anything to your, in your head with language, you are ultimately limiting yourself to the confines of language and Mm. the programming and the conditioning and everything that goes along with language. And that true wisdom and knowledge exists beyond what can be expressed through language. It's a feeling rather than an articulation. Um, so I took it very seriously. I'm also a Capricorn. Capricorns are extremists. So I was told to say what is woo all day. And I was going to say what is woo all day. I was Mm. not going to mess around. And um, so I remember the first three days, I thought I was definitely losing my mind. Mm -hmm. You know, you're meditating 18 hours a day. I was in so much physical pain because I was not used to sitting in a meditative, even though I practice yoga, I skateboarded, I danced. I was a very active person Mm -hmm. sitting. I I can't even express to you the amount of physical pain in my legs and in my back Mm -hmm. sitting so off so long. Um, It was mind boggling. So I was in this immense pain and I was saying, what is woo over and over again? And I was like, oh, I'm losing my mind. I'm so this losing was like my... m- multiple days in a row. Or... Oh, this was ten days. Yeah. So, so and and the what is woo was not like one day. Like no, no, you know, no. Okay, today we're That's gonna what just, is woo. That is the, the whole practice. Thing. Yeah, wow. <laughs> that is okay. just the practice. Mm-hmm. And I mean, P.S. Most people, everyone there, had done retreats before. Mm-hmm. Everyone there was a practicing Buddhist. Everyone there was so much more experienced than I was. I manipulated my way into that retreat. I, which is so ironic and so hilarious. You know, Mm. I didn't necessarily lie. I didn't lie, but I omitted tons of information on my application. Mm -hmm. I, and then I remember the monk called me because he was concerned that I didn't, I did say I had never done a retreat before. And they were concerned that I was going to, leave and Blow they up. really oh. don't want anyone to leave because mm-hmm. it kind of messes with the group and it can mess with your own psyche. You know, if you just leave in the middle of a retreat. Yeah. So they were concerned. And I remember having the foresight to say like, well, I trust the process. Mm-hmm. So whatever you think is best, I'll 
I accept, you know, which I, was not how I felt. I just said it because I knew that was like the Buddhist thing to say. Yeah. <laughs> and they were like, okay, you can come. So I was so just like, I can't even explain how out of my league I was in terms of experience, but they were right to be concerned because I was genuinely losing my mind and so terrified because I kept thinking, who am I going to be Mm. if all I say is what is woo in my head? Am I going to have a personality? Am I going to have any way to connect to people? I was just spinning out on so many levels. And then it was about day three that I began to realize, okay, so let me just say, um, mm-hmm. when you are saying what is woo in your head over and over again, you become hyper aware of the voices in your head. So the, there was the voice in my head that was saying, what is woo? Mm-hmm. There was the voice in my head that was my wandering thoughts. That was the term they gave us, which I thought was so beautiful. Your wandering thoughts. So that was like, I'm hungry. What mm-hmm. am I going to wear? Like that person meditates better than me. Mm -hmm. Then there was a voice in your head that judges your wandering thoughts. Like, so yes, why doesn't that boy like me? That's a stupid thing to think or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then there was whoever was listening to all of that. Mm. And so you, I became just hyper aware of the, the fragmented voices in my head of the, the wandering thoughts, the judger, the listener and the mantra. Mm -hmm. And what I began to have to notice is how cyclical my wandering thoughts were. And Mm -hmm. I have to tell you, I thought about what I was going to wear 70,000 times a day, Mm -hmm. maybe what I was going to eat like 400,000 times what I had already eaten. I can't, Mm -hmm. it was so apparent how much you just think the same thought over and over again. So at about like three days in, maybe four days in, I had this realization that saying what is woo is infinitely more interesting than I would say 98% of all of my thoughts. Like 98% of my thoughts are complete garbage. Right. And they're just like literal garbage, not even judging. They're just like actual garbage, you know? Mm -hmm. And then maybe like 2% of my thoughts were interesting or serving me in any way. Mm -hmm. And everything else was just not serving me and not interesting. Neither of those things. And And that was why damaging sometimes, right? I mean, depending on where the thoughts go. Yeah. But just even beyond that, just even just just not even serving me as enough, you know, let alone damaging. Mm-hmm. But that it was so much useless, like comically useless thought. Mm-hmm. And then I felt as if I could surrender to the mantra. I was like, oh, the mantra is actually more interesting than my yeah. thoughts. And then it was really interesting because the quality of my thoughts started competing with the mantra. It was like, my ego was like, oh, okay, well, those thoughts are boring you. Well, maybe let's think more interesting thoughts in order for you to pay attention to us and not pay attention to the mantra. And wow. so then I started to become infinitely more interesting to myself in my head. Wow. Hmm. because the mantra started to gain its own momentum and its own orbit. And so Hmm. for my ego to compete with the orbit of the mantra and the interest of it, the tail of it that I was now chasing, my ego had to become more interesting, 
which I thought was kind of cool. You know, I enjoyed being in my head more in a certain way. Um, Mm -hmm because I was more interesting a little bit, but the pain, I think for that first retreat was just a really hard one to get over. Yeah. Wow. That's wild. I mean, thank you for it's a sharing. long story long. <laughs> I mean, that's so, so cool though. And, you know, from the beginning you were saying, um, talking about just coming into that with like, you know, no or little experience. And it reminded me like, there's a book Zen mind, beginner's mind. And I don't know, like also a ton about Buddhism, but from what I understand, like there's, you know, this idea around approaching life with, uh, this like beginner's mind. It's kind of like a child, you know, like we're open, we're curious. And when we look at the world in that way, um, maybe it feels like there's less judgment or something like that. I I think I'm making this part up, but there's something good about like, approaching or something like Zen or Buddhist about approaching life from that perspective. So it kind of feels like maybe intentionally, unintentionally, you were like kind of actually very Buddhist about the whole thing because you were approaching things from like a beginner's mind. Yeah. Whoa. (laughs) Yeah, totally. I was an accidental intentional Buddhist. Yeah. 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 That's funny. Um, that's funny. And I think the thing about children, from what I understand is from zero to seven, they, ex- I think there's like beta, theta, there's these different kind of like mind, um, patterning that you're in, or I don't even know the word, but I know a, a guy, Bruce Lipton, who I highly recommend talks about, um, mm. being in a theta mind space and, it's kind of where children are until zero to seven and they kind of come out of it, but it's similar to where we are right before we fall asleep. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to access during the day as a waking person, but right before you fall asleep, you're kind of in that uh, theta mindset. And that um, that's when you should be listening to guided meditations to help with your programming because you're, that's when your mind is the most open to receive Ooh, that information. Fun. Yeah. He's, he's definitely a very groovy guy worth looking into if you're interested in your programming and how to kind of work on a lot of your unconscious conditioning. He talks a lot about that, um, guided meditation, right, right before bed stuff. Love it. How, and how did you, how did you get into all of this? I mean, it's kind of like a big, um, that's broad, but even just like starting to become aware of like patterns and thoughts and you know maybe wanting to like do something about it or just uh explore that awareness I think um well part of my answer is it was a bit always with me and then part of my answer was there was a cataclysmic like life event um but I think as a child I was very almost alarmingly existential in a certain way. And also my, my parents did not censor a lot of things. So there was a lot of knowledge and information I had about world politics as a young, young kid. And Mm -hmm. I also think growing up in a city where you are witnessing homelessness. Where did you grow up again? I grew up in Boston. 
Mm, okay. Um, so, but it, I grew up in Boston proper and I just was very aware of a discrepancy of homeless people and people with homes. Mm-hmm. That was just very like clear to me. And I was incredibly perplexed by this concept of yeah. like, well, why doesn't anyone in their family let them live with them? Like they don't know anyone that has a home that'll let them stay there. Like I couldn't understand that concept. And there would be a couple of homeless people that were always in certain places. So I would just see them day after day, after day, after day, after day. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I didn't see them, I was, where are they? You know, and I, I mean, obvious as like a kid, you know, your parents will give you a dollar, you know, give a homeless person. Mm-hmm. It's like, it all felt very fucked up to me. Even then I just, I could not wrap my head around homelessness. And also I just, I, that one, that one really, really was impacting me. And then also I had a really tough time understanding like war and religion. I, my grandmother was very, very religious Catholic. Mm -hmm. And my dad was a professor of ancient Greece or classics. Um, so he was like, the Greek gods were like a thing Mm -hmm. in our house that I was very aware of. And I was so perplexed as to how are the Greek gods myth and the Bible is truth. Mm. Like why is one, one and the other, the other, I, that was something that really, I couldn't reconcile how one, you know, religious system is a myth and one isn't. Mm -hmm. So that was really heavy on my mind. And then the, my grandmother who's super into Jesus, very into heaven and hell. I did not like the concept of either eternity right. fucked my ass up. I did not like the concept of eternity. I didn't want to be, mm-hmm. I Wild. don't like, I didn't mm-hmm. want to be in heaven for eternity. It sounded boring as fuck. I didn't want to be in hell. I didn't, couldn't understand how anyone deserved eternal hell mm-hmm. that I couldn't wrap my head around. Um, eternity kept me up at night. I was a child insomniac. Mm. So I had a really, really tough time sleeping. I also ate a disturbing amount of candy, which did not help. Mm. So I think I was like wicked, (laughs) depressed child, like Mm -hmm. retrospectively. I mean, yes, I did jump rope and yes, I had friends and yes, I had a life and roller skated and all those things. But I was so um, in alone in my head as a kid was just like not a safe space. I was really Mm. thinking some fucked up shit. Um, Just not understand. I just, I don't know. I I don't. Also, my mother was really, she talked a lot about Palestine. I mean, I know it's a big thing now, but Mm -hmm. she talked a lot about Palestine at the time. And, uh, um, the settlements of Palestine, that also was a big theme of the house. Mm. So So, a lot of these things really captured my imagination. Like I never had the Santa Claus and the, and the, um, Mm -hmm. the, what's the the thing with the teeth, the tooth fairy. fairy. Yeah. yeah, None of those, uh, those were not penetrating my child consciousness. So I was really rooted in, in some world, uh, world tragedy that, Mm my heart couldn't handle for for some light uh, dinner, dinner top conversations. Yeah. Also, I think my, my family were European. So drinking was a big part of the family culture. I started drinking very young. 
Mm. And that was not seen as like an issue. I started smoking pot very young. So I think also kind of experimenting with these mind altering. uh, Also, I was like growing up when raves were happening. So there was a lot of, there was, I don't know. I think that I grew up in a time where there was a lot more independence. My parents provided a lot more independence. Mm -hmm. I was drinking a lot. I was doing more drugs than probably like an average a teenager or middle schooler. I was growing up fast, I think. Mm-hmm. And so that, you know, I think, you know, you do acid at a young age, you're going to have some fucking questions about the nature of reality. Oh yeah. So I think, I think that that all was pushing me towards being a more, also, I had a very tough time at school because, um, you know, both my parents were professors mm. and when you're the child of a professor everyone really respects uh, your parents' intelligence, right? Because they're like, Mm -hmm. oh, they're professors. I always thought I was so much more emotionally intelligent than my parents. I mean, God has blessed them. But I was like, these people don't know what the fuck they're talking about. They're not, they don't know what they're doing. They're just, they're just going through life like everybody else. You know, I didn't Mm -hmm. have the same reverence for them because they were my parents and because I was, you know, analyzing them as humans um, Mm -hmm. from a young age. And so- to me, education was not masked in the same mystery that it is for many. I also grew up in a Harvard dormitory. Mm. So I was living with Harvard students from six until 12. Oh, wow. And that's very, that's a, yeah. that's a unique, that's a unique experience. experience. Mm-hmm. And so Harvard was very demystified for me, which is, a, it's a mystical institution, I would think, for most people who observe it to be you know, the pinnacle of higher education. Mm -hmm. I was seeing the underbelly of it. Right. And, and witnessing the students and witnessing their experience and witnessing my parents and witnessing their colleagues. And Mm -hmm. so I had a real thing about education that wasn't rooted in like some deep reverence or respect. I was actually quite uh, rebellious towards it. And then I went to a private school. I was privileged to go to a private school, obviously very privileged to experience that. But, um, at my private school, I felt as if a lot of what I was learning was pure propaganda. I wouldn't have used the word propaganda at the time, but Mm -hmm. I just really remember, um, we watched this, uh, thing called eyes this documentary called eyes on the prize in the fifth grade, which is probably young to see that it's about the civil rights movement. So there's a lot of, uh, really harsh violence that you witness. And I remember watching, you know, the young girl who was, uh, you know, de, de quote unquote, desegregating a uh, school in Alabama and watching, mm-hmm. you know, how she was literally being tortured, mm. um, by the society of which she was infiltrating. And the way that that was contextualized for us mm. was like, well, the North understood this was wrong. Right. And, these people just didn't, you know, it was, I was like, that is, I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> I was just like, I don't think so. And I remember being a kid and, you know, one of my, uh, like two of my best friends were both African-American, but they were the minority in this private school, obviously, mm-hmm. um, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And just the fact that they were watching that surrounded by white kids, I was like, this is not, I felt like I was like, this, something is fucking not right here. Mm-hmm. I did. I just felt like this is fucked up, but I mm-hmm. didn't have the language to under, understand. I just felt like this is, 
this is traumatizing. Right. This is traumatizing my friends to watch Mm -hmm. this in this context. Wow. Not that we white kids shouldn't have been watching it. I just didn't, I, I don't know what the answer is, to be honest, but I just felt like this was upsetting. Right. And I, I also remember, um, you know, my, my friend, um, crying to me once, uh, you know, I think I can't remember, maybe we're in the ninth grade, we were drinking, but she was crying to me because she said, I don't even want to cry even thinking about this, but, um, she was talking about how she felt like she wasn't beautiful because she she was so dark. Mm. And like this girl was so, first of all, she had tits. So we were all obsessed with her tits. You know, this is like ninth grade. So we're like, no, you have the best tits. You know, (laughs) we're like, what? And also she was genuinely such a gorgeous girl. So beautiful. So, Mm -hmm. so beautiful. And, you know, but she was surrounded by a lot of, you know, middle, upper class, Mm -hmm. you know, white kids and, that just made me so upset that mm-hmm. she felt that, you know, and just what was my part in that? What was my, mm. where, what was my part in her story? I just, I didn't know all I could do was sit there. I couldn't say I understood. I couldn't say anything except hug my friend. And yeah. we didn't have, you know, we didn't have the language at that time to really talk about it. I don't even, I didn't talk to my parents about it. All I did was like sat with my friend and she cried and like, So all of these kind of, I think things were leading me to not see the world as some benevolent place of which I should just be some happy person. I I don't know. I just couldn't be happy in the face of all this sadness. And Mm. I remember having a lot of jealousy towards people that seemed so happy and content with, <laughs> with society. I was like, what the fuck are you seeing that I'm not like, yeah. And feeling or, or so alone. What are you not that. seeing that I am maybe also in some cases, right? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I yeah. think racial injustice really, really was impacting me at that, at, at these formative times, along mm-hmm. with the economic injustice, but Mm -hmm. And then also my place in privilege being a white person and being um, someone who had financial privilege. I just was horrified, Mm. horrified by that. I didn't, I felt, I I can't even say, um, I don't even think guilt is the, is a word that can encapsulate it. It was just, it was deeper than guilt or even shame. Yeah, it was, but both of those things probably are a big part of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So long story, even longer. I mm-hmm. think I was had this pre propensity. And then I had a friend who died when I was 20. She was my absolute best friend in the world. Um, mm-hmm. A real, like a deep, 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 deep soul connection. And we were very entwined and enmeshed as one person. And so when she died, I think that that just so rocked my sense of, uh, self. And also I refuse to give up on the relationship. And so that's what really started to lead me towards a more quote unquote spiritual slash metaphysical interest, because I was like, I have to stay friends with this person. I have to stay connected and we don't have the physical anymore. Mm -hmm. So I had to run to a metaphysical so that, and then, oh, geez, long story, even longer, which I eventually found out I had a brain tumor when I was 26. So those, mm. that also led me into a deep 
questioning of self and of health and of healing and meaning and the body and yada, yada, you get it. Because when you are faced with health um, predicaments, I think a lot of people will have a dark night of the soul trying to deeply understand the whys and the what nows. Mm. So I think that is a very long answer to your question. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. It feels, you know, heavy and, and yeah, I've been reflecting a decent amount, uh, lately on darkness and light. And it feels like a theme that kind of keeps coming up and being mirrored by like some, you know, people that I'm, that I'm speaking with, this feels kind of like another instance of that, you know, like, um, I feel like some of the people that I would consider like just bring so much like light into this world and just feel like that um, resonates like within them and expands like outside of them. And um, yeah, that like those are the very people who have gone through some of the darkest times as far as I like am aware of at least. And you never really know what people go through, but um, but yeah, it just feels really true that that it's through darkness that we, that we come to like know and feel light. Do you feel, do you feel light now that you, you know, have experienced, have had these experiences and do you feel like kind of along this path that's kind of led you to maybe some light? Maybe that's a little bit of like a leading question, but. Um, no, I, I, I totally get like, it. W- when you reflect on like your childhood and also just like some of the other darkness that you mentioned kind of, you know, throughout uh, young adulthood. Oh man, I haven't even scratched the surface of all that <laughs> darkness, but yeah. Oh know, yeah. I think the thing that's interesting is I did um, another silent retreat right before COVID happened. Mm. I didn't, we didn't know it was coming, wow. but it was coming. And it was a very interesting uh, boot camp for that, well, for what was to come. But at this silent retreat, it was different in the sense that I actually did not have the physical pain at all because I had been meditating for 10 years. Um, I have the physical so pain I, right now. I've been sitting on the floor for like the last 20 minutes. Oh, that's so <laughs> I like, funny. Oh my yeah. God, for 10 days. It's, it does sound, it sounds you, like, I, yeah. you can't, I, I can't no. even, Yeah, <laughs> it was, it, it was shamanic, you know, yeah. but this time I didn't have the physical pain. I could have initiated it if I wanted to, and like sat in a full Lotus pose. I was not mm. sitting in full Lotus. I was sitting, you know, um, yeah. like half Lotus or with a cross leg. So I, I could have, if I wanted to explore physical pain, I could have, but I was like, ah, I'm not so, I don't need to, I had that journey last time. So I actually, mm-hmm. um, was not dealing with the physical pain as much as I was like, Oh, I'll just, and it was so funny. I was so arrogant. The first three days I was like, this is fine. I'm I so like peaceful. Been there, done that. Mm. Yeah. I was like I the first couple of days I was so fucking peaceful. And then I fucking lost it. <laughs> I was like, Oh, did I suffer? Oh Lord. Did I suffer? You know, it, I mm-hmm. suffered day four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. It was oh that God. one was 11 days. It wasn't until day 11 that I, I came out wow. of the d- d- darkest place. How I humbling. Could've. No. Mm. Oh, it was, I could laugh at myself. I was like, mm. you dumb bitch, you fucking dumb white bitch. Like you are so silly. Cause at the first I was like, I get, I'm fine. Like I have evolved, you know, yes. spiritual ego. Like, mm. uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I really could laugh at myself. That was the only thing that kept me going. Cause I was like, Oh God. Um, 
But when I came out of that one, I was so nihilistic. At Mm. first I was like really grateful and had so much gratitude. And I came back to my house and I appreciated, I can't even tell you how much I appreciated my child. Mm. Um, because I think I'm such a work obsessed person. Mm-hmm. I'm so just, oh, it's driven by work and uh, my ambition. And I really just got to see like, oh man, I've done a great job. I could admit like I've done a really great job with this child and a motherhood, which was something I completely didn't honor in myself, which is so mm. ironic, mm. you know, because I do consider myself to be a feminist, but um just not honoring the feminine of myself, you know, I really, I I think Mm. I did a great, really proud of my mothering, you know, to be totally honest. And it has brought me so much, um, joy and meaning, you know, ton of meaning. She really opened me up as an artist and Mm. she opened me up as a performer and, um, she's changed my life in so many positive ways. And I think I completely take it for granted. Mm-hmm. And I came back just really being like, fuck, I really honor being able to be a mother, being her mother. What a uh, badass, you know, chick she is. And yeah, so I did come back with like an intense gratitude for my home and for my relationship and for my child And then I just like literally dove into a complete nihilistic state where I was like, everything is meaningless. It doesn't really matter if I die Mm -hmm. or not die. Like I could, like, I'd be driving and I would just kind of like, be like, you know, those feelings, maybe you don't, but like those feelings, well, I should just like turn, you know, I should just like turn off the road and then Mm. it'll be over, you know, just really, (laughs) (laughs) but not even upset about it. Just, I was just playing in the, but this is fine if I do that. Just so nihilistic. Just yes. And that sat with me for a couple of months. And I almost was like, I feel nothing. I, mm. I felt nothing. And then COVID happened. And I was like, oh, well, I feel something, which is like intense <laughs> fucking fear, but mm-hmm. still nothing also. And mm. then just living with COVID for a while. But I can't, I don't know, something, I don't know what it was, but just maybe accepting COVID, accepting the lessons of the retreat, something really, really, uh, I can't, I can't tell you what it was, but something shifted. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, I have not felt like any deep, you know, I usually have like seasonal depression in the sense that every season I get into a depression, not mm-hmm. just like in the winter. It's just like, I have every season. I'll like, yeah, have like waves. Right. Really fucking dark times. Yeah. That has not happened for two years, mm. which is probably the longest. It is the longest in my life. You know, like I'll, I'll have moments of like sadness or whatever, but not this like, wow, I haven't gone in, in that same way. And it's not like life is any better or any worse. I just, I don't know. I don't know how to explain it except for I have, um, I have a sense of humor more Mm -hmm. to my own existence, or I'm just allowing things to pass through me in a different way. Or, you know, something happened. I had a really, you know, sad breakup with a friend and a business partner and sad, sad, sad. But then, Mm -hmm. you know, I was fine. I was like, oh, well, that's the best for us all. So I don't know. I think that I have, uh, I have had some reprieve, I guess, in the past two years of 
an, an incessant gnawing of suffering and sadness, I've yeah. been a little better. Yeah. Like things have Woo. been, yeah. not my life. My life's been the same, but my mm-hmm. vibe has been like, all right. Like, all right. I feel you. <laughs> kind of chill. Yeah, totally. And like, I mean, that's part of life, right? Again, like the waves, this is kind of like, it feels really shitty to feel really shitty, especially after feeling really good. And then you're like, fuck, like I'm feeling shitty. And I thought this was over and that maybe like it wouldn't happen again. And, but then we can just like get lost in like that mind fuck of like expectations and, you know, just like, yeah. So when we just kind of are like, grooving and we're like "Mm, feeling pretty good right now and okay like all right you know I think you just actually illuminated me I think what I have been able to do more recently is approach my feeling shitty with curiosity Mm, and then it doesn't last as long so I guess I am still feeling shitty Mm -hmm. but I approach it with more curiosity and it just it's like a diarrhea you know it just it it feels shitty and it comes out Mm mm-hmm yeah. yeah. So I, I guess I just have more diarrhea. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And the attitude <laughs> with which you approach yeah, of it. Yeah, which I approach. And then I examine And you the just diarrhea. let it out. Mm. Yeah. I'm just like, oh, yes. yeah. And then, or yeah, I'm just like, oh, wow. I, I sense diarrhea, but I'm not um, putting a lot of judgment on it. I'm just like, mm. oh, yeah, diarrhea yeah. happens. I went through <laughs> a phase where I took photos of my poop because I was curious about it. And I didn't end up doing anything with those. So, uh, but yeah, I could see how this would be like, um, you know, maybe I don't know where you should do something with those photos. It would be interesting (laughs) to like overlay the diarrhea with Mm. other images. Yeah. At this point, I think I deleted them, but I know what you mean. Oh, that's too bad. Well, you can, you'll do it again. I did get really into like zooming really into things so that like people wouldn't know what they are. I'll take a photo of like my period or something and then just like zoom into it a lot. So people have no idea what it is. That's genius. Mm. And I just like, it was just fun and like curious and no, you, you know, should why not? get an, a camera with a macro <laughs> lens so you can have it be yeah displayed in the museum. Thank you. Well, we'll see. Because with a phone, you know, it'll eventually get pixelated. But with a nice macro lens, you could do that same thing just with like higher quality and you could blow it up to different aspect ratios. Yeah. Why not? That's a genius idea. You need to do that idea. Okay. Okay. Cool. Now I will. No, that's like, (laughs) honestly, that's a genius idea. Yeah. I just, I just really like that idea of like, you know, why, like there's, when we associate like I don't know, some sort of judgment around like whatever it is that we're like looking at or experiencing. Like, what if we kind of distort it in some way? So that way we like, oh, yeah, I super love it. zoom out or like super zoom in. Can be beautiful. Yeah. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah, no, I love this. I mm. love that. And you could call it perspective of perspectives. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I think uh, I had this just like really rebellious, like, you know, attitude when I was starting and I was like, fuck you all. I'm going to post photos of my period on the internet and you're not going to know what it is. Or I love it. And like, like an asshole, like a really close up of an asshole. We're like, you really can't. You're like, "Mm, I don't know what I'm looking at. And then, you know, that's "Mm." so genius. (laughs) I love that so much. I'm glad an open wound, like a a blemish pimple. Yeah. Yeah, No, it's really good. Yeah. Jizz. Jizz would be really good too. You could. Yeah. Hi, why not? You know? Yeah. And, And like, 
ultimately then what our, our notion of like, what is whatever, like weird or disgusting or gross or something like that is just like, mm, is it though? I don't know. No, I love it. Maybe I love it's a little it. far, but I don't know. I felt like you might appreciate no. that. So I just no, thought No, you share. must. <laughs> you literally must do this. Feel, feel free to also like share the idea and, you know, run with it if it, if it inspires no, no. you. <laughs> you must do this. Only if I, only if I also have like an overlay of the, like the sexy groovy voice. So I'm like, mm, this yeah. Is a, this is a photo that you're looking at and you don't know what it is, but, but it it's going to be like some ASMR, like diarrhea pics or something. Yeah, anyway. that's a great idea. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I mean, like going back to getting curious, though, like mm, definitely totally feel you on that. Like this is um, this is the practice because ultimately, like that shit doesn't go away forever. You know, like we still no. feel we still feel shitty. Like I felt yesterday I had an amazing experience, tripped on acid with some friends in Joshua Tree. Legit. Oh, very wow. Fun. Yesterday. Mm, actually. Two days ago, two days Whoa, ago. Oh, wow. And, what uh, magic that it was, we get to share mm, your vibration after that. Vibration, sending it through right now to you. Yeah. I mean, man. So not only was that incredible, but also I felt like waves of just like feeling really shitty and just like spiraling into like my own mind and feeling oh, like, yeah. it, you know, yeah, of yeah. course. <laughs> it's like on the one hand, I'm like dancing naked in the sunset and like with friends and eating celery and feeling like it's like the most magical thing I've ever done and then on the other hand I'm like fuck like reflecting on like my my breakup my like past relationships like the patterns like what role do I play in like my relationships and life and like anyway so it's like I I I was like fuck like here I am in this great experience I'm feeling so good and then I'm like but I'm feeling so bad right now and I don't want to feel bad and then like it all comes back to like resistance I feel and surrender you know it's like mm. here I was like in this moment just like resisting even the way that I was feeling I was like I don't want to be feeling this way but then I was like okay Narelle just like try to like let go and like allow yourself to feel this way just surrender to it and then that's ultimately like you know what helps plus like you know sharing how I was feeling with friends feeling like validated and stuff but like trying to also just like practice that in myself, you know, just practice like moving through the feelings, which also mm. is another thing that I really, really, really want to like talk with you about and like hear uh, more about from you is moving through the feelings, like through mm. the body. And I really, if I weren't sitting in a closet right now because of the garbage trucks outside, I was considering like recording this in a more embodied way and just like dancing around with you. There's like a vision that I had. Um, <laughs> I was like, I'm just going to interview Tori and we're going to be like talking and like moving as we're talking and we're going to be doing all of these like wild things. But um, yeah, I mean, wow. How, okay. So I would love to learn how did you come to the point of like, being like, this is the way to go. Like, got to move through the feelings. Like what showed you that? Or how did you come across that? Well, so I started dancing really late in life. I was 19, mm -hmm. um, late for a dancer, not for a human. Mm -hmm. Um, I played sports all through high school. So I was really into athletics and I was always into moving because I was a very hypermanic kid. So when you're, 
hyper, you know, AD, diagnosed ADHD, although I didn't take any meds, I had a lot of excess energy. So mm-hmm. I had to move. I was always roller skating. I was always moving. I was swimming. I was jumping on trampolines. I was like a, like a, an electron mm, yeah, moving, moving all the time. Um, and when I, my mother wanted me to go to Sarah Lawrence, which is a, a school in New York, um, and they did not have any sports. And I was like, what the fuck? I didn't even re- I did not want to go to college. I was not interested. And my mom was just like, just go to Sarah Lawrence. And I was like, mm-hmm. whatever, mom, you know? Mm-hmm. And I mean, goddess bless her. I'm so grateful. It was the absolute best school for me. I had so much love for that opportunity to go to college and oh, opportunity. So you did go I did this, go. Oh yeah. Okay, to that school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She chose it for me and she was correct. Okay. Um, and I'm so, so blessed and so lucky, um, so lucky for that experience and just to be able to go to college at all. But um, they didn't have any sports, but they did have a dance program. Mm. And so I started taking dance. I was like very competitive person from being from a sports background. And um, as I was taking these dance classes, everyone was so much better than me because they'd been mm. dancing their whole lives. And I was fucking furious, you know, I was like, these fucking bitches, you know, (laughs) not that I'm proud that I thought that, but I was like, you fucking whores, I'm going to be better than you one day. So of course that was like, not the attitude, but that was what drove me at the time is like competition. Um, so, and I also was living in New York city. I had an, uh, an apartment and I was commuting to school. I was living with a boyfriend at the time. And so I would take dance classes every Mm. single day, um, at Sarah Lawrence. And then I would take dances classes in the city every weekend and every vacation. And I would just dance all the time. I was Mm -hmm. just committed. I was like, I want to learn to dance. And, um, I always liked, I used to go to clubs a lot in the, as a teenager, I would go to clubs Mm -hmm. and, and raves and stuff. Like that was the thing we would do. So dancing was always something that was really important to me, but I wanted to like learn the training. Um, And then when my best friend died, I was about to start this dance program at NYU. It was like a three-week intensive program where you dance like six hours a day or eight hours a day. I don't remember. And she died literally the day before I was starting the program. Uh, And um, I didn't know what to do. Like, So I went to the program the next day and mm -hmm. because I didn't want to be home alone. And Mm -hmm. I cried the entire day. I would just, mm-hmm. and I literally cried basically the whole program. Like nobody talked to me. I made yeah. zero, I made not one friend, mm-hmm. um, but I stayed, I just did the program. Wow. And then I kept taking classes afterwards because I just did not know what to do with myself. You mm-hmm. know, I was, I really didn't. So I think that, um, and then I went back to Sarah Lawrence and there was a yoga teacher who started taking yoga and she was like, she kind of opened me up to, uh, how this, she was a great yoga teacher. It was not about fitness for her. It was not Mm -hmm. about flexibility. It was about something much deeper. And I don't think I have the language or the emotional, spiritual, uh, physical intelligence to truly comprehend all that, you know, she was providing, but Mm -hmm. I did get the memo of like Mm -hmm. yoga is some deep shit. Yeah. And and approach it like that. Like you were saying before, right? Like, even if you don't have the language or like the kind of like intellectual, like wraparound to be able to like 
convey whatever happened there. Like your body knows and like knew, <laughs> bless you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, right. So it's like, yeah, it's, you understood you got you, like you said, you got the memo. Yeah. I got the memo and mm-hmm. I just, the dance and the yoga saved my life. Mm. And I will say that dance is my antidepressant. Yeah. Dance. I never, I, dance means so much to me. And so I never was planning. I'm, you know, I did never thought I'm like good enough to be a professional dancer. So I was never on that track, but I still mm-hmm. wanted to study dance. Like that was very interesting and important to me mm-hmm. to continuing with the study, even after college. So I was lucky I lived in New York city and I just kept taking dance classes. And then when I moved to the woods, um, I met a girl and we ended up starting a dance studio together. She was also a dancer And we both were just really passionate about dance. And she was the one who really encouraged me to teach. Oh my gosh, Um, that's amazing. So we started this dance studio together and um, I got started teaching dance and we focused purely on adults and mature teens, you know, teens that, and wanting to train teens that had never had dance classes as kids. Cause it's really intimidating if you're a teenager going into a class or all yeah. the kids already know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, That's how I so feel that now. Was, <laughs> yeah, know? but I like as that, an adult, I, I want to dance and I'm like doing it, but I'm like, yeah, I also was curious about like checking out classes at this point, which, you know, of course, I like why not? There is, I mean, like what, that's what we want to provide is a space for, you know, beginners to come and start learning some technique, you know, cause the thing about technique is that through greater technique, you can have greater expression mm. and you move out of your patterning. It's like, we all have our authentic movement, which is groovy and right. it's awesome to explore authentic movement. But I think anyone will know that you get stuck in a pattern mm-hmm. and you get stuck in your own, you know, what's easy. It's kind and, of like cooking, like, you know, yes. like the more, the more like the, you can be more like intuitive with and creative with cooking. It feels to me, at least when you know, like the basics, like which, you know, flavors, which herbs, you know, which spices kind of go well together. You create a little palette, like, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I feel you like, yeah. Mm-hmm. More ingredients. Mm-hmm. So by training and actually having some training in different modalities, it, heightens your abilities and your, your own authentic movement. At least I believe I'm Mm -hmm. welcome for others to disagree. So, um, that, you know, so I've been teaching dance. I've had this dance studio now almost 10 years. And so I'm very used to talking and moving Yeah, because I'm always, you know, drop your tail, lift in here. You're doing a great job. Da da da. Tom, do relevé turn. I'm constantly jibber jabbering Mm -hmm. during class. And so I have that muscle memory. You know, I put my 10,000 hours in docking and dancing at the same time. Yeah, And where, I mean, the internet is what decided for me to do this more often. Mm-hmm. It was just something I did every once in a while. Cause I thought, Oh, it's a different way of doing a video. You know, I've done so many kinds of videos. I've done monologues. I've done sketch comedy. I've done absurdity. I've done so many different things. And by and this, I did you mean the emotional the like dancing, mo- dancing and the moving, the emotions, the dancing and, and the talking. Through. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the first I did an so interpretive unique, dance, by the way, of, I hadn't really come across that before. Nobody <laughs> was doing that, which is right. very crazy to find, to do something on the internet that Mm-hmm. I hadn't seen anyone else doing it. I mean, maybe someone else, but I had never seen it. Right. And it started off 
trying to interpretive dance what it was like to get stoned. Mm. That was the very first one. And yeah. then I did the next one I did was my, I don't know why I did this, but I did an interpretive dance about CRISPR, the gene modification. Oh, okay. Technology. Cause I've, I have a lot of thoughts and feelings about CRISPR. Okay. And then I, I did one on, um, on, uh, what's it called? Uh, how people are using uh, new technology to reverse aging mm. and stem cells and age reversal. And so, but I was more focusing at that point on Instagram and then a friend kind of pushed me to go on TikTok. Mm-hmm. And at first my TikTok world was just like a series of nothing. It was just a graveyard, you know, I was putting out content, but it didn't matter. And I wasn't really engaging in TikTok, but eventually mm-hmm. I did one video that like got a lot of momentum, at least for me, I think like a hundred thousand people watched it. Mm-hmm. And then I think what I started doing is I was like, oh, I should look back on different videos that I can repost um, mm. that I'd done before. And so I posted the one on CRISPR and it just like had this interest in it. Mm-hmm. And then I had done, oh, I think what I, I never posted the one on the age modification. I had like actually refilmed it. Mm. Um, and I posted that and that did really well. And so then I, and then all of these people started commenting, um, I have ADHD and this really helps me listen. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And that was what inspired me. I was like, oh, cool. Like this is serving a community of people that like want to hear, um, ideas or thoughts or information, but like sitting for three minutes and watching someone talk is like, it doesn't grab them. Mm -hmm. And then I also kind of was like, oh, well, the algorithm sensors all the time. And like, this is a way to kind of like move around the algorithm Mm -hmm. and play within the algorithm a little bit. So Mm -hmm. it was really like the TikTok community's appreciation of it that made me do it more. Cool. And like, that's so interesting um, that you, yeah, it just makes me think of like kids in school and teachers and how like, um, I would imagine that especially for kids who have those like ADHD tendencies and, you know, and also like, I have a lot of thoughts about like that and like tying that to just like attention and, you know, technology and like how we're so stimulated and anyway, Um, so yeah, for kids who are like used to being so stimulated and are like either going to look at like their iPad or their phone or their teacher and the teacher is like trying to kind of like, you know, engage them, um, how moving around more might help. Yeah. And just moving in general helps. And I just think there's something really funny about interpretive dance. Like that's funny to me. And also, I mean, I have talked about this before, but there is something really funny about not trying to be pretty or do something well, but to look funny Mm -hmm. and to like, so my objective when I'm moving is like, I'm not trying to do like four pirouettes. I'm trying to like also make people laugh, you know? (laughs) So it's like using my, I'm like, it's kind of like clowning, I guess, in a certain way it is clowning. Yeah. But I happen to have a dance background, but my dance background, I'm not the best dancer on planet earth either. I'm just a dancer that's, you know, so I just, um, use this, you know, this energy I have Mm -hmm. and then I clown. 
And that's clown. (laughs) I, I love it. I love the clowning. And that's what I was really thinking about it from that, from that perspective, from the, from your perspective, actually more than the perspective of like somebody watching that, because that's why I felt it was like really interesting that you said that about people with ADHD, like watching, um, because that's like really cool on the receiving end. But I, what I've been really exploring over the past, like six months or so, especially is like on the, on the performing end, right. Or like, even if you're not performing for anyone, but you're just like moving emotions through your body, like moving energy Ah, through your body, mm -hmm. like, and I would just, you know, just like exploring what that's like and how that feels. And like you were saying with, um, you know, your friend's death and how that really like saved you. Um, yeah, that's just like, so, so incredibly powerful and feels to me like, I don't know, my mind has just been absolutely blown when I've been, as I've been like learning about and practicing different, like embodiment movement, like feeling into my body, moving emotions through my body type stuff, how like uncommon it feels unless like, again, you're a kid in sports or you're dancing or something, you know, if you're like working in tech like me (laughs) um, and like using your brain a lot and you're just like, not moving your body that much, how the anxiety and the, you know, like whatever's kind of going on in your mind can just, Oh, yes. And you're making me think also Mm. about, you know, what is the options that you're often given is to go to a gym and what happens at a gym is it encouraged repetitive movement. Yeah. Right. So you're repeating a movement and I'm not going to say that there isn't value to repetition because absolutely there's value to repetition, mm-hmm. but, um, cause there's even like, you can get into a trance with repetition, right? Like but the at mantra. the same time, yes. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I think dance has this unpredictable nature in choreography, right? Cause mm. you're always putting, you do repetition through exercises in order to build technique, but then usually, at least in my classes and in many classes, you have choreography, which is always unexpected and Mm -hmm. comes from a person. And it's that relationship to dance and choreography that I find to be the most, um, I mean, therapeutic, shamanic, you know, also shaking, you know, there's all sorts of things that you can do that are rolling around on the floor. Yeah, Yeah. Like you can use random movements and shaking and, you know, but I guess to me, to, to be able to explore choreography is also so powerful. And I think that that's where, you know, being able to serve service adults with dance and provide them with opportunities to express emotion through movement, Mm -hmm. you know, and connect to music. I mean, I, to me, it's, it's so funny. It's like, I'm talking in these videos, but I love connecting to music too. I love the alchemy that exists um, with dance and music. And I guess I'm making a song <laughs> with my, blah, blah, blah. but um, cause there is a rhythm to it. If I, when I edit it, I can yes. sense it, you mm-hmm, know, mm-hmm. it's an unconscious rhythm that has to exist. Yeah. Yeah. I did notice yeah. that too. That's very cool. And what, and what you're saying with like connecting to dance and music and like, you know, that being, therapeutic and also talking earlier about your experiences like raving or like going you know to clubs or dancing like that's only something that I've actually I've explored like a lot more as an adult and how like that's just been incredible (laughs) it's like it's like you go and like people go and 
uh, and just dance and like groove with the music and vibe. And there's something about like everything that we talked about, like the vibration and the movement and also like the energy from like the community and like everybody there together. There's just like something so powerful. And like, you know, from there's like this perspective, I guess, at least that's the perspective that I that I uh, felt. I don't know that I felt at some point was like, oh, yeah, people going out to dance party like, OK, but it feels like a whole secret world with like incredible like healing potential, too, you know, and also Absolutely. like some drugs, <laughs> you know, like Absolutely. associated with all of these different experiences and stuff. And also yeah. what, what are we doing? We are stomping our feet on the earth, giving her a massage, mm. you know, Ooh. we're, I love that. We're giving back to the earth when we stomp our feet. Yeah. 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 Just so and acupressure like, to the planet. Love that. And like a presence that comes about from just like shaking out the energy and the, you know, yeah, the, the wandering thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Wow. We did yeah. it. <laughs> we did it. We did it. We solved world peace. I unfortunately have to eat lunch before I have to go teach. Please go. Yes. Um, but lastly, I would just love uh, if you would share um, where people can find you and I'll share some links in the show notes. Oh yeah. Um, Instagram. I'm at Tony Naj, T-O-N-I-N-A-G-Y. And on TikTok, it's Tony.Naj. T-O-N-I dot N-A-G-Y. And I also have a website, Cave Light Productions, and that's got some of my sketch comedy on there. And I have a blog that I used to write about parenting and life called TonyBaloney.com. And that's Ooh. got a lot of, a lot of content in there. <laughs> I mean, I haven't written in it for a while, but if you ever want to know who I was, it's there. It's there for you. It's yeah. a lot about um, the parenting journey for any parents out there. Beautiful. Amazing. Thank you. And then um, your dance studio also. Yeah. Yeah. It's called Side Stream Studio. Sweet. So, where? Yeah. Deviates from the mainstream, right? Yeah. Where, where is it? In Brattleboro, Vermont. Vermont. Okay, cool. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much. It was such yes, thank a pleasure you to have me. you, Tony. Yeah. Really heart, great to meet you. Lots of and love. Experience your sexy voice. Mm, thank you so much. Love experiencing your play and yeah, just great energy and wisdom. Yay. Thank you for having Yay. me. Okay. Have a beautiful day. Thanks a lot, Tony. Bye. And for those listening, thank you so much for listening. Um, it's been really amazing to share this experience, this moment, this conversation with Tony, with you, uh, wishing you a beautiful day and until next time, stay grounded. <laughs>